Let's thank God. Yawning already. What's that? Tammy's yawning already. Tammy. I'm recording this. For people who are listening to this Bible study, Tammy Storm sleeps through my Bible studies. We're going to slap her. Well, let's pray. Hope Tammy makes it. Dear Lord, thank you very much for your word and our good time in the book of Romans. We're very grateful for Paul's wisdom. We'd ask that you we'd stay on track with his thought and be blessed by it. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter 11 of Romans. That means we do chapter 11 and 12 tonight. Four more chapters after this, so two more weeks. And uh, he is coming to rest on the um, on the instruction he had given, or the handling he had given to Jewish objections to the expansion of election, the expansion of the promise in faith. Uh, he had argued earlier in the book, everybody was a sinner, everybody needed this, uh, and that faith was rooted in Abraham prior to the covenant, uh, uh, prior to circumcision, prior to uh, the religion the Jews were counting on, that it was not a matter of righteousness or by the law, it was only uh, by the grace of God through faith. And he was responding in chapter um, uh, 9 to their objections um, to that whole process by quoting portions of the Old Testament, revealing to them that it was... Um, something they had already accounted for in their thinking, already accounted for and agreed with when they applied it to someone else. When they applied it to Esau, they didn't mind that it wasn't by genealogy. Uh, they didn't mind um, uh, that it wasn't by primogenitorship uh, because it favored them. And here with the Gospels spread to the whole world, um, this promise that this promise of election that the Jews had counted on themselves has been set aside. So now he's answering the question, first verse, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now he had just mentioned, uh, you know, I'm, I'm telling you that, uh, that, that Romans 9 has, is really not about personal election to salvation, it's about um, the status of Jews' election versus Gentile election, and that Judaism was made sort of essentially null and void. And so this is the question that does come up. Has he rejected his people? But if destiny were a, a fixed thing, and I've been in this discussion a lot with various people who have the nerve to disagree, um, uh, that when God destines something, when God sets something in motion, God makes a dec declaration concerning someone, like, Evan, you're going to hell. Uh, the idea of saying any destiny by God is a fixed destiny is a, a bit presumptuous, because the nature of mercy is the change of intention, is the change of God's destiny for you. Um, and that he had made them vessels of wrath, perhaps so that they would change. The passages he quoted out of Hosea suggested that he was going to uh, manage to do something with the people who were not his people anymore. The Jews were, not his, were called not my people, and now they will be called sons of the living God. And so he's got this 
this promise, this possibility, and then in Romans 10 he talks about that a remnant is set aside. Uh, and that everybody was given this opportunity. The creation had preached it, the law had preached it, but uh, they weren't listening, but there was a remnant. But he's still not um, content with the Gentiles being savable and the remnant of the Jews being savable. He wants more than that. By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have demolished thy altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. You remember this situation, it's right before he goes off and hears the still small voice of God in the cave, and not in the whirlwind or the storm. And then after, right after that, it says, but what is God's reply to him? I have the verses here on the side out of 1 Kings 19. God's reply to him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I like the rest of that verse, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Baal was a bit of a, uh, kind of a fertility, uh, there were, um, the worship was, was, was much more uh, sensual in Baal worship and, and, and that sort of thing. But the idea of, of pursuing that God to that degree, they had not done so. They had stayed faithful to God. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, we know from his earlier teaching that this grace is an answer to faith. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So when it, in Ephesians, when he contrasts, uh, by grace are you saved, not of works, uh, it's that distinction between that which I ought to get because I earned it and that which I was given. Uh, I liked, uh, um, was it Corey Ten Boom's... Um, definition was uh, grace, is, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One is not getting, one is getting. Mercy you don't get, grace you do get. It is by grace, no longer works. What then? Now, now, you have to keep in mind, when he's talking about all these things, all that Romans has laid out for you before, that the pursuit of God by faith, and we've been defining faith as the person on the axis of self to God, has turned away from themselves or the world, or other religions, or other gods, and turned toward God. He has sought God. Um, he had believed God. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. They wanted to hear the voice of God. That kind of, that's the sort of faith we're talking about. We're not talking about the kind of faith that says, yeah, I grew up in a Christian church and I learned my catechism and I believe with that stuff. That's not faith. Faith is assurance, conviction, um, believes God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And until that, and you know the difference, when you've talked to people, um, when you've talked to people that 
claim Christianity but don't show any pursuit of God, you have a natural, you know, they might not see any wild living on their part, but you go, are they really, this doesn't seem like the Christianity that the apostles were preaching, but I, but we, we picked up their definition of faith rather than faith that is the pursuit of God. So this remnant was chosen by this grace. The nature of that chosenness is always by faith. We, the, the basic circumstance for the Jews was we were elect by our status. And now you're saying we're elect not by works, not by status, not by descent, but by merely the state of my heart toward God, and then his grace poured out to me. What then? Israel failed to obtain what is sought. Now, he, he's, he's breaking Israel into two groups. He's got the Gentiles, who he's an apostle to. He mentions that a little later in the passage tonight. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. But, and there's a remnant of Jews that were elect by grace, who turned, believed, when, you know, the apostles, you know, they're all Jews. Um, and Paul's a Jew, and Peter's a Jew, and all these guys are Jews. And they're the remnant. They're the ones who turned and heard and believed. But Paul's not happy enough with that. But he wants to define who they are. Israel failed to obtain what was sought. The elect got it. The remnant got it. But Israel at large did not. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So he splits it in two parts. The remnant getting what uh, was promised. Um, to Abraham and through Christ, and the rest were um, hardened. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. That's a quote from Isaiah 29. It's in the box there. Now, if you look at the quote of the box, uh, it says, stupefy yourselves and be in a stupor. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. This is a much discussed aspect uh, about God's involvement, or the mechanism of God's involvement in people turning or not turning. That uh, people who believe that um, this is sort of, people are, are predestined for that category. The hardened, the non-elect, the damned. That they were always that, always going to be that. And I've already mentioned, I don't think that Paul, nor you, should, or did, he did not believe that he was limited by that hardening. He is still seeking their salvation. The remnant already have it. The remnant obtained it. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So he's, he's defining who they are and why they are, but he's not feeling that that's a fixed commodity. Now, Christ, when he quotes a different portion of Isaiah, but the same idea, I have Matthew 13 here on the side, and he's, this is his teaching on the parable of the sower. And they ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to, that, to you it has, been, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. They were the remnant. They were the elect obtaining it. The Jews that were listening were not. 
For to him who has will more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, You shall indeed hear. This is out of Isaiah 6, but it's the same, uh, the same theme. You shall indeed hear, but never understand. You shall indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their eyes are heavy of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn for me to heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And there's a, a, a great statement about the effect of faith. What are you looking at? Who are you pursuing? What are you listening to? And they have shut themselves down. And Christ was hardening the Jews intentionally with his parables so that they would not listen. It's uh, uh, somebody says a comp, you, you know, say someone is in a room and he gives you a riddle. And there's about half the group that says, I don't like riddles. And they go get a Coke. They don't want to bother trying to figure out the riddle. The riddle has an answer, but there's a bunch of people who are just, just scribbling on a piece of paper. Okay, if you do this and you do that, I don't have any riddles to, to give you, but they're intrigued by the riddle. And they pursue the riddle. The parables were that. They were obscure. They were not to make things clear. They were to make things interesting for the person who had, who already had. They, they already desired God. They already wanted what God could be in their lives. And they pursued it. And they were given more. And they had abundance. And those that did not, what they had was taken away. It's the nature of our, of our faith that... Uh, um, uh, C.S. Lewis said last night, well, he's dead, but he, his book said, uh, um, good rushes to good and evil rushes to evil. The more that you take of one, the more the other, the more of the same thing comes to you. So God gave them a spirit of stupor. God handed them his himself. It was like he said about out of uh, uh, the Psalms uh, last week about the creation speaking his greatness and they still don't listen. It's always a not listening. It's always a um, um, uh, for these people, it's always a not turning. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, it just sounds like, okay, okay, whatever you think the mechanism of the hardening is, God is hardening them. God is setting them up to be a... Um, uh, to be unable to see. They're asleep at the switch, and for you to go permanently, for you to add the word permanently, you don't have Paul's notion. Because look at the next verse. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? Now he said in the last ch chapter, or two chapters earlier, that they've stumbled over this stumbling stone, this, this cornerstone that Christ was. The Jews had stumbled on it. 
They had not discovered it. They had not been at the, the, the head of the corner. They had not made it, made it the keystone. They stumbled on it. They tripped over it. They tripped so hard they killed him. And you would think that after you get through the message of the of grace in Christ, here's the Lord raised from the dead, teaches his disciples, Pentecost happened, they preach at Pentecost and 3,000 get saved. Jews, okay, your remnant comes in first. Your, your elect obtain it immediately. They hear the message. They've been waiting for the, the redemption of the Lord, like Anna in the temple, or Simeon. They've been wanting this, and there it is. And then the message goes out to the Gentiles, and they start converting. Are you still left with this boatload of Jews? I mean, the majority of the Jews. When you think that Jerusalem probably was a city somewhere between 500,000, 800,000 souls in antiquity. Huge city. Uh, in the battle that it was destroyed in, over a million people died on the Jewish side in the battle over Jerusalem. Now, when you say 3,000 get saved at Pentecost, when you put it into those numbers, you're going, this is a small sect. This Christian thing is a small group of people in Jerusalem. It's big for us in Moscow, Idaho. We've only got 23,000. They have 500,000. It just gets, you know, you could even say the church grew to 10,000 people in Jerusalem. Still small. Still small. So this huge number of Jews are not of this hardened group, vessels of wrath, that that God has destined for destruction. And so Paul says, I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul has a hope, but he goes back the last week we were talking about, I would wish that I could give up my salvation for my kinsmen by race, the Jews, to get them saved. He, although he has got these categories set out, and he knows what the condition is. First, the condition of all men is sinful. The condition of all men is under the judgment of God. The condition of salvation is faith and faith alone. Um, but he's not just categorizing and then letting it ride. He's categorizing it and saying, the way I think of it is I'm looking at these people who are the least likely to turn and praying, working, and hoping for their turning. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Did you notice that he mentioned the, the jealousy? It's not, well you might say that's the great, not the greatest evangelistic motive. Um, but th that they would see they would see, um, I, I, I became a Christian out of jealousy. Um, you didn't know I was Jewish, did you? I'm, I'm not. My sister, my little sister, became a Christian before I did. It ticked me off. Just was, just. Um, I had been holding out my older brother to become a Christian five years earlier. And I had I had staked my place. I was I believed it was true. I believed my parents' faith was what God you know, but no, I was not going there. 
And then my sister, because she was difficult, um, during family devotions, show off, becomes a Christian. My parents didn't push me, didn't, weren't leaning on me at all. And my father says, that I said after that moment, in that evening, on that evening, well, now you only have me to worry about. <laughs> and uh, I don't know what he said, but it bugged the heck out of me. And it was shortly after, I don't, know if it was, I don't think it was that night, it was, a, it was a few days later that I became a Christian on my own in my room. But I was pushed there, it was, it was brought to the front by the fact that somebody else was getting this. Um, my nephew, um, that sort of, um, was, it, was, it, was it Nathan? That, about Rachel, we were celebrating her birthday, she was one, I think. And, uh, and he was really upset at the attention she was getting. She was being adorable. Adorable, everybody was cooing Laps. and everybody was laughing. And here's Nathan, a few years older, being ignored. And, and then he announced to the crowd as he stomped out of the room, well, she's not a Christian. <laughs> and uh, he wasn't either. Doug said, well, you're not either. <laughs> and say so he made some comment about him being half a Christian. Uh, we're conscious of, it's not, that was pretty raw jealousy or, or superiority or wanting to be superior. But when you see people moving out of darkness into light, when the Gentiles were gaining salvation, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That is something that people who might not agree with the theology of you know, Paul and how election and the promise is carried out and how all of Israel is everyone who has faith, can't ignore the effect of righteousness in the Gentiles. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Remember, he's been talking to the Jews <laughs> for a number of chapters. Inasmuch then as I'm apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I talk this, I talk this up. I want people to know that I'm preaching to non-Jews in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus save some of them. Paul is not believing that every Jew, singly and severally, is going to come to Christ. But he does believe that a portion of the hardened will. Okay? That, that if you look at the elect, the remnant, the Gentiles who have faith, and, and all, not the Gentiles singly and severally, but all the Gentiles that have faith are included in the promise, they're included in Israel, and you might just want to wash everything else aside. He does not. But he doesn't have some sort of Pollyanna view of it being, uh, uh, well, it's going to be all the Jews and everywhere are going to become Christians someday. I think some people have that notion in their eschatology. But he's looking to save some. And he is actively looking to cause this. He magnifies that he ministers to Gentiles. He... He wants to ramp this up so that the idea of people slipping, and Paul's big argument through a number of his books of, 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 of teaching was don't get caught up in Judaism again. There's 
do not go there. And so he keeps ramping up his ministry to the Gentiles to show it is by faith and by the pursuit of God that, that salvation comes because it has two benefits. It protects the gospel. That's why he fought St. Peter in Galatians. Um, and it makes the Jews jealous. It defines very clearly that it's not their Jewishness. It defines very clearly that it's effective. Salvation has come to them. And some of them, and this is sort of an odd, odd application or, 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 or disapplication, if that's a word, of I have become all things to all men that I might by any means win some. Well, here he says, I am pushing the fact that I've become like the Gentiles so that I could save some of the Jews. That he's actually, it's sort of a reverse idea. It's a, one based on jealousy. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, how, how he's using that there, I, I, you know, at a point like this, I go, I'm not sure I know what he's saying when he says, but life from the dead, as if life from the dead did not um, happen to Gentiles by salvation until the Jews come in. You know, now I, I think it might be, and he, he addresses this a little bit later um, uh, in the chapter. I'll, I'll mention it in verse 25. Uh, I want you to understand this mystery, a hardening has come on part of Israel until the full number of Gentiles come in, so all Israel will be saved. As it, you know, it, it, it might be an eschatological thing that when this, when the when when the effect of the Gentile salvation has its full effect, whatever Paul, that the life from the dead, the resurrection, is nigh. He may have that view, but. That's all I can suggest. And don't take that to the bank, by the way. Uh, but he's working for this, which means he believes the hardening can soften, that the vessels of wrath can be cleansed. But they, but it, it's due to, this, this, this illustration, or two illustrations here in 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy... So are the branches. Two illustrations. If the dough I took off the main lump and offered as first fruits, if it were holy, so is the lump it came from. And if the root of a bush is holy, so are the things that grow out of it. Now, it's not the first fruits of a lump and any lump out there is holy. No, the whole lump it came from is holy. The branches that were connected to the root are holy. You have to be connected to the holy. This is and 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 this is the the price that the Jews they were cutting themselves off. Well, he illustrates. He goes with that second illustration um, uh, to to um, I'll point this out to the Gentiles. But if some of the branches were broken off, verse seventeen, and you, a Gentile, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the riches of the olive tree. Do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. If the root is holy, the branches are holy. If the branches are connected to the root. 
but just because you, a wild you know, branch, was grafted into the original holy thing and the original <laughs> branches were broken off. I mean, the illustration is pretty clear. The wild olive shoot of the Gentiles, the branches broken off, are the Jews that rejected the Christ. Um, realize that the holiness flows from the thing that is holy into the branches. But you just have to be conscious of, of maintaining the connection. Not boasting in it. The Jews boasted in it, and it cost them. They were presuming on the connection. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. This connection to the holy has got to be maintained. Um, the way it is maintained is the maintenance of faith. You stand fast in faith, you destroy it by unbelief. That's Now, say, do you believe that you can lose your salvation? I do not, personally. Uh, but I also know there are passages that give you pause when you say things like that. Uh, it's my rule of it's my particular cosmology that I believe in eternal security, but I also know there are passages in Hebrews and other places and places like this that says, watch your step, bucko. But it, whatever it is, it's by unbelief. Now, Given that the whole thing has not been about, although it is, it is applied on the individual faith level, groups of people do not have faith. You know, um, uh, Charlemagne does not conquer a tribe of the Franks, holds a sword to their throat, baptizes every man, jack of them, and makes them Christians. They do not become Christians that way. You don't have a group faith. So it's, it's active in individual faith, but he's still talking about the ethnic groups. He's talking about the nations. He's, he's talking about all sorts of different groups of people. Um, so there's an, an aspect where he's warning Gentiles as Gentiles that faith has to be maintained. This is probably, I would take this more as a warning that parents who count on their salvation regarding the salvation of their kids, that's, the, that's what the Jews did. That somehow the line of descent, somehow being in the church. Um, I've mentioned to a few people recently. We are, I think, maybe in this Bible study, uh, we are not seeking a church. We're seeking Christ. You're not seeking Christianity. You're seeking Christ. You're not seeking Christendom. You're seeking Christ. And everyone has to pony up with the faith. Everyone has to answer to God for whether they believed or not. So as a people group, we Gentiles, we Protestant, Anglo-Saxon, or a little bit higher quality, Scots, we don't have any greater standing than the Jews. We, uh, we stand fast only through faith, and if God wouldn't spare natural branches, neither will he spare you. That is the thing that has to be protected. That's the thing that has to be insisted on. That's why I don't like anything that tries to make strength out of what people call covenant thought. 
that somehow the covenant to my family guarantees that my sons and daughter are... No, I don't think that. That it's not... It has to be, if they don't have faith, they're not saved. If they don't have the kind of faith that Paul insists on, neither will they be saved. There has to be this belief and this trust of God in what he has said. Note, then, the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you. That's almost a, a mean statement. Severity, uh, you, you want it to be like the footprints calendar or the poster, you know. You want the kindness to the fallen, don't you? I mean, oh, little Johnny stumbled and scratched his knee. Let mommy pick it up and kiss it, make it better. That's, Christ God says, now, severity to the fallen. Kindness to you. Well, he's talking about fallen off, well, say morally or off the tree. Severity to the fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Now, that phrase, continue in his kindness, this process, remember, God wants for his world righteousness. That's what he wants. He wanted it good, he made it good. And we spoiled it, and he has got a plan for us by faith to pursue his righteousness, which the law could not create. We pursue his righteousness by faith so he could forgive us, impute righteousness to us, and give us righteousness in act by our changed nature. We have to continue in that. The, 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 the idea is that our faith is almost synonymous with continuing in his kindness. Our faith puts us, um, uh, what it says in that Hebrews passage, without faith it is impossible to please God. We know that his benevolence, his kindness, his well done, good and faithful servant is, in, is, is reposed in the person that has sought him and sought his ways. and even the others. This is part of Paul's hope. If they do not persist in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. You don't want to insist to God that his destiny for the vessels of wrath, destined for destruction, is a permanent destiny. It turns you into just sort of a um, sort of a theological Nazi. Um, in that you think the Jews are bad. They've rejected the Christ. And you take on that, the wicked Jew in middle, uh, uh, in Europe, and how the Jew became the victim and the, and the object of all sorts of people's uh, bad attitudes. And Paul has a very strong description of their condition before God, but his hope for them, because it's grace, because it's faith, because it's a place you could be brought to, and because this is not a destiny that is fixed on you, you can, things can be done. Measures can be taken, even by magnifying his ministry to other groups of people. I'll magnify my ministry over here just to get their attention. They can be grafted in again. For if you have been cut from what by nature is a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated tree, 
how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? It's a natural place for them to be. Much more, because they had the oracles, they had the promises, they had all sorts of things. It was powerful for Paul to be there. And if, if there ever was a non-Jewish Jew, after his conversion, it was Paul. He had a ministry to the Gentiles, he became all things to all men, he fought off all the things that were trying to bring the law back uh, into them, but he was, he was gifted because he had been a Pharisee. <laughs> he was gifted because he had been um, uh, a very hard and fast Jew. And that is something we should always, when we're thinking of the ungodly, we're, we're, we don't actually deal with this problem. The Roman problem is not something we face. There's not even a synagogue in Moscow. I don't know if there's a synagogue in Spokane. Maybe there is. Um, there's a mosque here, but no synagogue. And there may be probably a few Jews, but they're all probably communists up on campus. Um, now, we're not struggling with this issue of the election of the Jews or not, but we do deal with people who are, as Gentiles, functioning much the same as the Jews. People who have grown up in Protestant circles, who have grown up in hearing the gospel and rejected it, have not pursued God, not had faith, and it seems to you that they've built a life completely devoid of that. And you could, you could not have hope. You could not have hope. And, you know, for a friend, uh, it might not be an ethnic uh, desire, but you, but you stop and say to yourself, there, there can be a way. The, the Jews had actually had prophecies hundreds of years earlier that God was going to harden them. I mean, is your friend got prophecies about him that he's so fixed, he's so set, he's so destined? Well, like as not, he will go to the bad place. But there's hope. There is the power to save some of them um, because of the nature of the gospel. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, verse 25, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come on part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. The, 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 when, you, when you take that note and you just quote, all Israel will be saved, people automatically deny Paul's definition. Not all of Israel are of Israel. You know, he made that argument earlier in the book. Not all Israel descend from Abraham. Everyone that is a descendant of faith, sharing the faith of Abraham, is the true Israel. In his mind, what he is looking for, there's a mystery that says, an Israel exists who, to whom the promises were given, and to the promises that were believed, and that the God that was being pursued, and the righteousness that he intended, there are people who pursued that, and they are the remnant, the Gentiles who believe, and then the, the, the hardened that finally turn. And it's sort of waiting for the mystery of it is this full number of the Gentiles. You say, well, a couple thousand years ought to take care of that. I don't know what he means by full number of the Gentiles. Um, I don't know if it had to do with the first century, before Israel, Judaism was destroyed in the fall of Jerusalem in, in 70 AD, or um, whether it's a more eschatological, uh, forward-looking thing. Uh, I'll leave that to your own eschatology. As it is written, this is Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. 
verse 27. It's a, divided up as two separate quotes in my ten, uh, translation. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That may be a reference. Some people think that's Isaiah 9. Um, I looked at it. I, uh, it was just too weak. Jeremiah 31 on the New Covenant says that more clearly. The, new, the covenant will take away their iniquity. Uh, this New Covenant. So he might be quoted, because that, that, the, the passage in Isaiah 50, uh, 59 does not have uh, I will t- with them when I take away their sins there at the end. It's also a possibility that the, the texts we have of the Old Testament don't have the right verse. You know, uh, In other words, I had to look this one up in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint translation tracked with this one, but the Hebrew one did not. Uh, it said it so differently that you almost didn't recognize it. Um, in the in the Hebrew text, so the Greek text, and so it may have been that that Isaiah fifty nine had all of it before, and Paul knew of it. Um, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now the the word election, as it springs into Christian theological fights, we're looking at. A state of privilege with God, a state of uh, setting, being set apart by God, uh, lifted up, that kind of elect, um, uh, rather than um, picked. You know, um, and, and given that the picked, whether you view it as picked or or, or or lifted up or whatever, they are they were elect, but not saved. They were elect because of their forefathers. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Now, you have to remember that in Paul's argument, if you go back through Romans, he was arguing that the promises weren't invalidated. The promises were kept. This is not the word of God made void. This is how it happened. This is how this promise to Abraham was kept. That you will be a father of multitudes, of many nations, and it's in the gospel going to the Gentiles that that's the case. He doesn't want people to think that somehow all of that was written off. But the meaning of it, the point of it, the nature of it is something different than we thought. Just so that you were, just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown you, they also may receive mercy. It's one of St. Paul's convoluted sentences. Uh, eh, What it's saying is the idea, we were both disobedient. We Gentiles got mercy because of their disobedience. They're going to get mercy because of our mercy. Different stories are being told. They were disobedient. Mercy showed them the way to mercy. That's the issue of jealousy. We are disobedient. Mercy showed us the way to mercy. For the Gentile, they were pagans, heathens, and the Jews rejecting the gospel opened it up for the Gentiles, and the Gentiles received mercy. So a different story, but the idea that it's the mercy of God. The idea is that we have to end up at the same place. God consigned all men to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. And that sort of sums up 
from chapter 1 to this point, the end of chapter 11, the, the argument of Romans. The rest of Romans is a is a application of the Christian life. Things we go after, things that we have to consider as Christians in the New Covenant. But this has been his argument. We're all wicked. None of us are righteous. None of us have any greater standing. The Gentiles, don't get up your, your, your ego up here because you're in now. Um, because you could be cut off just like them. All of this is, is to let everyone know that disobedience then receives mercy. And that's been the wonderful thing of God. And it's a wonderful thought for Paul. He goes into this um, uh, sort of, um, uh, what do they call it, uh, a panegyric on God, a, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Then Isaiah 40, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? That's sort of the, the, the this is the colophon, the benediction, the end of his argument. Okay? And he ends it that way. For to, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If you, if you, if you doubted me when I said this is kind of the end of his argument, probably he even says amen at the end. But the phrasing... The phrasing here is for from, think of this in terms of the faith as we have been talking about faith through this book. This is the pursuit of God, the belief in his word, the trust in him for that his, his promises will be kept. Your life has stopped being for you or for whatever else you served and it started being for him to whatever degree. It's from him. Remember, the root, not you. You don't bring the good to the thing by being in it. He brings the good to you. From him, and through him, and to him. And if you just thought in those terms about your life when you get up in the morning, from him, through him, and to him. Everything you do, every bowl of cereal you eat, not in some sort of pious you know, I'm lifting up my bowl of Lucky Charms. You say Lucky Charms, isn't that pagan Celtic leprechaun worship? No, it's marshmallows. We, we, we don't want to become full of some sort of artificial devotion. We're not trying to create uh, uber-devout minds. But we want our faith where we go for the guide in life, where we go for our command, where we go, that which shapes what we do and live is the living God because it is from him and through him and to him. All things. And that's why to him be glory forever. Amen. It's, a, a, it's sort of the banner that you want to march under rather than some sort of trying to put God's name or seeing Jesus' face in the tortilla, you know, um, which often happens, I hear, in Mexico. Uh, or the toast, if you have toast in the morning and has a picture of Jesus when it comes out of the toaster. We don't want that kind of um, sensuality to it, but we want the kind of actuality that we understand where all things rest. 
Everything good comes from and through and everything to him. Now, at the, he said, well, that's the end of his argument. Can't we just go home now? No, because my time's not up. And there's another short chapter, chapter 12, a wonderful chapter, because he has just eliminated Gentileism. He has eliminated Judaism. As he says in Ephesians, he's one made, made one man in the place of two, and so making peace by the blood of the cross. This is a new creature, this new thing. And so chapter 12 and following is, is the new covenant life. Because you were all disobedient, Jew and Gentile, God has had mercy on you all by faith. You are now brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, remember we, in other chapters where we were finding out that many passages were being quoted, I think it was Romans 8, uh, out of context. We love this passage, of Romans 12, 1 and 2. And people will quote it. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present, and nobody remembers that two verses earlier, God has consigned all men to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. This is resting on that. That's uh, four verses, excuse me, four verses earlier. Four verses earlier, he had just announced that God's mercies had come to us both, Jew and Gentile alike. Because of those mercies, he's appealing to us. Because this has happened, having a grip on this, having a grip on faith, not just you having it toward God, but you in your theology of the Christian life, having it as a fixed, known commodity. Paul's gone into a big, long argument to make this case. You should probably become more and more familiar with it by reading Romans again and again, because by the mercies of God, he's making this appeal to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What a, well, it's just a, it's a wonderful, true thing, which we can get a lot of good out of from other circumstances, but remember he is, he's announcing what the Christian life is like. It is not the sacrifices offered in the temple. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are moving from a covenant of law and ritual and temple observance and priesthood to one of personal faith and worship that is the encounter of you with your God toward righteousness. That's what you want to be sure that your life, since the whole point of all of this, remember that temple stuff and that ritual stuff, that was all a shadow. That never was, it led the Jews astray. They, they thought that that was where it was going to give them credits with God. He said, no, not at all. I, I, I've always wanted the righteousness of the individual, and in Christ is the path of this righteousness. So you presenting yourself as a righteous agent, holy and acceptable, I, just like I would have done with a lamb, I make it without spot or blemish, and I am supposed to be without spot or blemish, I present it to God, that is, and my life that way. Not in a religious moment, a living sacrifice, not one you kill. We've already died. I mean, that's what covered earlier in the book. 
We died so that we might live in Christ. This is our spiritual worship. If this not happening, it doesn't matter what your worship team does. It doesn't how how good the bass line is. It doesn't matter how good the singing is and how many hands are in the air swaying back and forth. It doesn't matter because there's nobody worship anything unless they're presenting themselves holy and acceptable. The spiritual worship is not done yet. Don't think you can replace it with high church worship or low church worship, any kind of what we call worship um, in the church. You've been given something to do. And that is to produce holiness in your life. Do not, verse 2, be conformed to this world. I always like J.B. Phillips' translation. I, I, like the, I don't like the poetry of it, but the description is, do not let the world press you into its mold. And when we think about this axis that we're on, of who we're trying to serve, and who we're trying to be accepted by, and you watch all these pastors or individuals slowly let the world's standards whittle away at them, not so that they go out and wear short skirts and dance, you know, bad dances. That's not that kind of worldliness. But just whatever the world says, doesn't matter if it's the law, doesn't matter if it's current trends in thought about religious things, if you're there looking for their approval, waiting for the popes of whatever frame of mind that you're trying to impress to bless you, you're letting the world conform you into its mold. But be transformed. Our task is to avoid that and to be transformed by renewing your mind. Because the key thing is that you may prove that you may prove what is the will of God. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. Because he just stripped the law from us. Right? He just said, okay, no law. The law was good, but it wasn't going to make righteous. So what does the Christian doesn't go running back to the law. He, he takes on this task of spiritual worship, personal change, knowing what the will of God is, by having their mind be shifted. doesn't say what the shift is. For by the grace given to me, I bid every one of you, every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can get off the rails on that. He says, because of my salvation, the grace I received, and he's received apostleship from Jesus Christ. He's received great forgiveness. He was the chief of sinners, he claimed. Watch that you don't think too highly of yourself. That's just a, always a problem. But to think with sober judgment. Make an educated assessment of who you are according to the measure of faith. Now you say, ah, what is that? What do you mean the measure of faith? which God has assigned him. Your position in the body, and that's what he's talking about, because that's what he talks about next. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about um, people who don't quite aren't quite able to believe in Jesus quite, but they believe he was a good teacher. Yeah, that's enough. That's sort of a you know, a little bit of faith, lots lots of faith, uh, or that it's like a juice or something that people think if they can just write their own ticket with God if they have enough of it. Um, he's talking about. Our existence in the New Covenant is a new body. It's a new kind of thing. It's a new ethical frame. It's a new mind. It's not the world. It's a new mind, and we get transformed by it. But as this is built up, you're going to recognize that in the membership of the body of Christ, there are, like in your body, things that you treat, as he said in Corinthians, with greater modesty. Some people you know in Christ are the butt of the church. And we cover it up. Or the armpit. Or the wart. Less noble parts of the body. We're treated with greater modesty, it says. The member, it's, Lewis is great on this in his essay on membership. But the idea, it's, it's a uniquely Christian concept, Lewis says, that St. Paul invents the unity of unequals. Because at belonging not in a class structure, which he's saying, don't get like that. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But to think according to the measure of faith. The different roles people take in the church is going to be on the basis of their measure of faith. And if you understand it not as a juice or a degree of belief or the knob of intensity, I believe in Jesus. Oh, that's just said at one. I really believe in Jesus. I turn it up to 11. I, five reallys, believe in Jesus. <laughs> you say, how do you measure the measure of faith when it's just how hard you're believing? How intensely, how did you, I knew a guy in the Navy who, who felt he hadn't prayed until he'd sweat blood because it says that about, you know, Jesus in the garden. I think in one of the translations, the Catholic mm -hmm. Bible. Um, looking for that intensity. We're not looking for an intensity. We're looking, the, the, faith is a degree of pursuit of the living God. He rewards those who seek him. Believing he exists is just that proto-faith, that first degree of faith. It's not enough to save you, believing God exists, because only fools say he doesn't. But it's the beginning point. And there comes a time when the promise of God in Jesus Christ, there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved, the belief, the degree of faith necessary to be saved, enter the church, is whatever degree you want to call it. But we'll call it the first degree of faith. But there are people who seek God more and more. And he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith. In, if service, in our serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal, he who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is letting you know that the membership of the body of Christ is unequal. It is dependent upon the proportion or degree of pursuit 
that has been assigned to you, that, that you, you might, to a degree it's assigned to you by God because it's a capability. It has a, a degree of how far can I chase God down? I mean, how, how, how can I get closer and closer to knowing Him? People seek it in all sorts of different ways. I'm not saying that it has any kind of rules how this happens. He just says, this is, the, this is the plan. But don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Really realize where you are. It's not saying that the people at the first degree of faith aren't saved, but someone at the fifth degree of faith might be a prophet. Because they have sought things to that degree. Maybe the teacher is at a degree of faith you'd call three, the third degree of faith, because they have sought enough things that they can turn and teach others. It warns us that not all of us should not, we should not all become teachers, because teachers will be more strictly judged. There's an assignment, a proportion, and a degree of grace that comes to you by the grace given to me, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us, so these things are um, distinctions between us, and we are, we are told that that body is supposed to exist, which, which replaced Gentile paganism, whatever held their society together. <coughs> it replaces Judaism and the tribes and the law and all the other things. This is the Christian existence. Now, he says that the, your role in the church differs according to your measure of faith, but... When he gets to verse 9, it's no longer, you know, y'all do different things. You don't get to say that about ethics. You don't, first degree of faith, everything following is required of you. Because that is normative for the Christian. Because it doesn't say, let love be genuine for those who have the special gift at loving other people. No, it's let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. These are, these are imperatives. These are what the Spirit of God will be telling people at the first degree of faith. The first degree of faith has stepped across the line. Jesus Christ has made them righteous. And they have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. They might not be ready to be teachers or prophets or even serving in the church, but they are in. And their inness means everyone in the body shares this. Everyone in the body shares this love. When it says hate what is evil, oh, just love would uh, love be genuine, actual, you know, not the pretend kind of words of love that we learn how to speak in Christianese to each other so that they don't suspect you can't stand them. Um, it's actual. You really care. Hate authentic. No, and I will kill you later. <laughs> hate what is evil, which I just did. I hated that evil of using the word authentic. Um, hate what is evil. Hate what? This is one of the problems you we have with when we get caught up in theologians' terms or ethical hatred. Always just well, hatred. How do you do this? When Saint, when David says, "Do I not hate them with a righteous hatred?" Uh, what? Do I not hate them with a righteous hatred? How do you hate anybody with a right? We think it's always malevolent, it's always angry, always annoyed, always, you know, vituperative. But obviously not. I'm supposed to hate what is evil. Because 
hatred is is the turning away from. You know, it's the it's it's just like you would if you dislike somebody, you would turn your back on them, you'd shun them, you'd cut them at the mall. You saw some, you know, person you didn't like at school and you would just avoid them. Hatred turns away. Hatred has them no part of you, no part of your life. That might help you understand if anyone does not hate father and mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, more than if they, uh, they hate their own life. It says you're supposed to hate your own life. Well, so that we can pursue the life in Christ. So we don't get caught up in our parents. We love our parents more than Christ. I have to turn away from them. I have got to give them up. Anyone who would not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There is this process, this, this axis of faith that says, you're going to pick who you're going to serve. You are a slave to whomever you serve. So, what is it going to be? Hate what's evil. Love what's good. Hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Inside the church, there's more than just the love that we have for people in the world. There's the affection of family, the affection of belonging. A family is a membership, too. Uh, that's the illustration Lewis gives. That even the family dog is a member of the family. You don't say the dog has an equal vote with dad or the eldest son just because he's a member of the family. He's a dog, for heaven's sake. But inside the family, there's an affection that goes on. Outdo one another in showing honor. So speak highly of each other. Never flag in zeal. That means never get worn out in, in the thrill that it is to be a Christian. Be aglow with the Spirit. Wasn't there a women's study group called Something Women's like Aglow? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I never liked that name. Because a glow, when you feel like Tinkerbell or uh, <laughs> didn't she glow? Yes. A glow. I think well lit. You know, is your life well lit by the Spirit? It's a, it's something that we don't get to. We're just trying to, you know, to like check off enough boxes. Jesus, this week, okay, I got to church. I went to Bible study in Romans. Like, okay, cool. No, he's saying well lit. Don't flag in zeal. Out, you know, these are all things that are all, you know they're good. You're looking at them and you go, these are really good. I guess I, they're really good. And they are by the apostle. We learned on Sunday in church that not listening to the apostles is bad. Uh, and this is an apostle. Serve the Lord. Although you can't define, I can't define being a glow with the Spirit, or what is the right amount of zeal? Is it wrong to be always witnessing, always tracks on you? You know, my father's always going through his pockets looking for a track in a restaurant to find out what to leave on the table with the tip. You know, he's, you know, well, he's, he's zealous. Okay, is that my definition, Jim Wilson? Good definition. Is my life about this? Because remember, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Once you realize that your faith is expressed that way, at that agent, at that being, being full of zeal for him, not by your definition of zeal, not by the group you're in's definition of zeal, and not by their definition of what a glow means, 
but it's going to mean something. You're going to be lit in a certain way. You're going to be zealous in a certain way. You're going to serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. No matter what, you're going to glory. We learned that in Romans 8. That nothing shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You are going to be conformed to the image of His Son. You're going to be glorified. What's wrong with that? You're going to get the award-winning check from the Publishers Clearinghouse. You got, you won. Why wouldn't you be happy about it? Be patient in tribulation. Okay, you know that's good. That's a good. Yeah, you don't wouldn't mind loving naturally and always aglow with the spirit. Patient tribulation. That's that's asking for something. Um, patient. You know, it's it's a virtue. It's a severe virtue. It's a virtue that only occurs in negative circumstances. That's it. It's like courage. You know. Okay. Um, you can't have patience when nobody tests it. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. We don't have in the Christian church a law of tithing. You don't have a... You're looking for changed people. This is all about... All of that got left at the end of chapter 11 and before. It's, that's all behind... We're now trying to outline what the church in Rome should be, Jew and Gentile alike. This is a very quick, wonderful overview of if you had a church that acted like this, you'd be done. My work here is done. I don't have to preach anymore. Look at that, Romans 12. For the church, everybody doing this. This is what the apostle approves of. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Generously. doesn't say, and the church shaking you down for your regular ten. No, you are this way. You're the one that is watching your genuineness of your love. No church is supposed to be coming into your life and running the dipstick into your love uh, and saying, okay, yeah, it's not quite genuine enough. There's no way we can know these things. You're the only real agent that has the actual control over you. It's a wonderfully libertarian, you know, you're governing, you be, are being governed by your God because you have sought your God. And your belief, remember, everything is riding on your belief. Your standing in Christ is because you had faith. You have pursued in a serious sort of way. Practice hospitality. It's all bold. Thank goodness that's over. Oh, darn it. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. It's like, okay, couldn't this list end sometime? Bless those who persecute you, not bless you. Bless and do not curse them. Covers that a little bit later in the book, too, so we'll get to come back to that. But rejoice with those who rejoice. Sympathize. Weep with those who weep. We're sympathetic people. And I always like that. I see the women in this community are very grateful for them because they really seem to understand that. Weep with those who weep. Oh yeah, yeah. Tammy was uh, relating something at dinner. <laughs> Stephanie 
Hagen just had her first ultrasound for her pregnancy and and they got the heartbeat of the baby and she had sent a, a, a file, a, a sound file, sound email, mm -hmm. so people could hear them talking in the room and and there's the thump, 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 and then a doctor said, right about now the women are crying and Tammy's listening to the file crying. <laughs> you know, even though it's not there to support, uh, Stephanie wasn't even aware, but, but there's a great ability to rejoice with people and to mourn with people and to care for people. It's just great to see. And when Christian church is working correctly, it's, it's living with that sympathy. Live in harmony with one another. So you sympathize, you harmonize. Which means that like in a membership, you're not singing unison. Your life is adding something. I, I like to give the illustration of when I first learned to sing parts as a young adult yeah, on hymns. I couldn't imagine how much it improved hymns I hated. You know, I hated some hymns. Still hate some hymns. But I love these hymns now because, my gosh, what you brought to it, what you bring to the Christian life and other people's life, what you are, when you don't think of yourself more highly than you want to think, and you thought with sober judgment, and you're fulfilling the dignity God has given you by the measure of your faith in the company of saints, You've brought that. You're not seizing more teaching authority than anybody expects you to have. You're not claiming to be a prophet when you're not really a prophet. You are taking what God has given you and what you have sought in him and found. Now, you are bringing something, regardless of what you're doing, that's a harmony to everybody else's doing. The person who comes in serving in their serving, or, or exhorting in their exhortation, or in their exhortation exhorting, those people are bringing something that the person who is teaching or prophesying or doing whatever else doesn't really have the wherewithal maybe to do. Whatever reason they don't have the wherewithal to do it, the rest of the body picks it up. Where we share certain things, we also bring in the different thing that benefits us all. Do not be haughty. So sympathize, harmonize, and don't be uppity but associate with the lowly. It doesn't say there is no lowly. <coughs> it warned us that there is the measure of faith in the body of Christ and different tasks according to the measure of faith and the amount of grace that's been given to you. But we're all in the kingdom. We're all in that body. And there are parts of the body we invest with greater honor because they're less noble. We, we associate. We are not a class structure, but we, are, we have discrete uh, uh, levels of height and the people that are higher who figure out what Jesus knew yes I am your master and lord and he washed their feet that's he, is, he took that role of a servant and that's how greatness in the kingdom of God is measured in your how you associate with the lowly never be conceited repay no one evil for evil but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all Consider the noble answer. Um, I don't know what the Greek word is there for noble. Somebody who knows that stuff can tell me someday. I might look it up sometime. Our word noble has to do with uh, a, a kind of uh, obligation that we have um, to the betterment of the situation. Uh, a noble takes, noblesse oblige, 
is the French. The French, we despise them, but they have great phrasing for things. Uh, noblesse oblige, the obligations of nobility. So when I take thought to what would be noble, you know how that shifts what you were going to do? Well, what would be noble, Johnny? Oh, couldn't I just say I forgot? Couldn't I just say it was I didn't, I didn't have enough money to buy you a gift? Well, what would be noble, Johnny? Well, well, noble. You want what Prince William would do? Um, yeah, you know it changes. It changes uh, how you function, if possible. So far as it depends upon you. Very little bit of realism. Live peaceably with all. The world is filled with bad people. Wicked people, pagan people, disobedient Christians, obedient Christians who don't have their heads screwed on right, uh, who are trials to your patience. You are living peaceably as far as you are contributing to it. You are bringing, individually, you are bringing all this stuff into the company of the saints. You're going to find out your measure, you're going to give that to the church. You're going to find out how to do all these things because this is the righteousness that Christ has called us to through faith. Remember, this is all available to us because we have faith. This is all available because we have the mercies of God. He's beseeching us on the basis of the mercies of God that this is where we should present ourselves holy and acceptable. So live peaceably with all, but don't think that you have to be a perfectionist or utopian. If the church doesn't run right, all is lost. Well, the church doesn't run right and never will. And people will not behave. So you behave. You live as peaceably. You contribute the degree of order that makes for peace as much as you can make for peace in the situation. It's amazing if there's a number of people in a disordered situation. If there's one hysterical woman, because it's going to be a woman, and another woman grabs her and says, let's go over here. Let's go into another room because she's screaming or whatever. She helps... She, she, she helps bring order. You can bring order to the situation. You're living peaceably with all as best you can. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. There's a little lesson to you right there. Not only tells you what not to do, but that something's going to get done. It's not that don't avenge yourselves because vengeance is wrong not yours. You don't avenge yourself because God avenges you. You leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Wonderful thing about that. He's just, loving, merciful, all sorts of good things, and he's powerful enough to take out the trash. You always feel, you ever watch those movies? And the only one that came close, Die Hard, probably came was the best, probably. Because Alan Rickman was just the worst. Okay? A sniveling, weaselly, intelligent, self-absorbed piece of work, cared nothing for the lives of others. And there at the very end, you, just, you want him to die exquisitely. And you want to watch it. And you want to watch it, and they say, how can we let them watch it? A bullet in him's too good. So what do you do? You have him hanging, slow motion, trying to pull the gun up on the girl? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On uh, John McClane's wife. And undoes the wristband on the watch. 
and then the expression on his face changes into complete mortified surprise as he realizes he's falling to his death. Pull away, long shot of the building watching the body fall. But they let you see it drop away from the camera. Well, why did we want that? We wanted the vengeance, for heaven's sake. We weren't even there. It was all fake. It was all fiction, but we still wanted the vengeance. And we, we wanted to taste it again and again and again, because it's never quite enough. When God takes care of it, it'll be enough. Matter of fact, our heart will go out and go, well, do you think it's enough? Too much? God is going to give vengeance. Now, this is something, we have a little verse here out of First Peter 2, speaking of Christ, and says in this, we are called... Um, in that portion, chapter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted to him who judges justly. Even the Christ, who could have taken vengeance, didn't. He trusted God, who would judge justly. And that can remove a lot of, the, a lot of your anger, a lot of your desire to not live peaceably with all, and not love, and not honor, not bless when you've been cursed, all sorts of things like that, is because you want the punishment of their moral indiscretion in your life to be meted out right now. And you would like to be the one, you know, dropping the switch on the electric chair. You want to be the one who fires the gun. You want, and if you can't do that, you just want to speak rudely to them. If you get it into your mind, from him and through him and to him are all things. And your faith is being measured by how much it's from him and through him and to him in your mind. When you are able, like Christ, to say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, in the midst of him trusting God who judges justly to take care of things. Can you give it to God? Now, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the pursuit of the believer. Because in pursuing God, we are pursuing God's plan for the world, which is the righteousness of man. We seek God, we seek righteousness. And God's victory on the cross, God's victory in history, is measured in the Christians not being overcome by evil and overcoming that evil with how good they are. Because that's the whole, that's the narrative, that's the story, that's the dramatic arc in this, this business of your salvation. Christ on the cross dying to produce holiness in you. Because he was trying to produce holiness in his world. And it's only by your faith. So you looking, gauging your belief, gauging your faith, gauging your pursuit of God, and gauging your pursuit of his righteousness, and not letting this long passage with a long list of concepts get away from you, because it's a list. I preached on it a number of years ago, back in the, probably, I don't know, Stone Age? 12 years ago or so, <laughs> and I was looking at the notes on it from it today, and I had a, I'd broken these into an individual line and put a little checkbox next to each one, mm-hmm. and the sermon notes, that's rude, I realize, but uh, then you go through, and, yeah, I got, my love is genuine, I, 
I kind of hate it when it's evil. Uh, and then go through and check off. Then you can only focus on the ones you really need help with. But uh, take care of that. Well, next week we get to look at Romans 13 and 14. We've got some great stuff in there about getting along with other believers in this state. But let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Thank you very much for the mercies, in spite of our disobedience, the faith that has brought that grace into our lives. We'd ask that you'd use us the way you'd like to use all believers, and that you'd use each of us in the way that each of us can contribute to the needs of the body. In your Son's name, amen. Mm -hmm.